Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Peter Atwater, and he is the author of several books, most recently... The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. Peter has had a fascinating career in finance, uh, J.P. Morgan, Bank One, a few other large places where he got to see how people's sentiment and confidence levels affected their decision making. And this is everything from securitized credit cards to investing and and beyond. Uh, I found this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. We discussed everything from the shape of cars to January 6th and how each of the events that that we talked about or or milestones in society reflect the confidence level and the degree of uncertainty that the population at large feels. Uh, these are things that can be measured and from those measurements you could get a sense of what's likely to come next. Uh, I I thought the discussion was absolutely fascinating, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my discussion with Financial Insights, Peter Atwater. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks so much, Barry. So so let's talk a little bit about your your background, which I find is is kind of fascinating. You graduate William and Mary in '83. Uh, how did your career begin? Where did, where did you go from? From college, yeah, I have a very traditional finance background. Uh, it started at J.P. Morgan right out of school. Went through their bank training program. Uh, wanted a foreign assignment, and the next thing I knew, I was in Delaware. <laughs> um, and what I was ended up doing, though, was the beginning of what we call asset-backed securities today. Pooling together credit card loans for Sears, for MB&A, and First USA car loans. And if you Remember your history, banks at that point were just beginning to compete with the big Wall Street firms. And and commercial paper and asset-backed securities were the first securities that the Fed gave banks permission to underwrite. And so suddenly, we were having to compete with Solomon, with Bayer, with CSFB in their territory. And so my job basically became... How do we outthink them? Because there was no way we could, you know, outmuscle Merrill, and so we had to. We had just had to be better at structuring, finding ways to make things less expensive, you know, bring something else to bear. 
So what years were this? When were you at J.P. Morgan? I was there from 83 to 96. Okay. And then what ultimately – so you missed all the fun during the financial crisis. I did. Crisis. I did. I, I planted the seeds. <laughs> um, Although back then, performing credit card debt wasn't quite the same as – Ninja loans being fed no. into mortgage backs. No, I, I mean, or CLO we, squared. And, or, and, and, you know, I, I left JP Morgan to actually go work for First USA, one of the credit card companies. And, and, you know, part of that was this clear view of the trajectory that securitization was going to change the business. You know, little did I realize that a year later we'd get bought by Bank One because Bank One needed desperately to have a credit card business. And so my career made another pivot to go from the treasurer of a startup credit card company to being the treasurer of the eighth largest bank in the country. Eventually, you rise to the role of CEO of private client services at Bank One. Tell us a little bit about that job. Yeah, so Bank One had merged with First Chicago. The merger was tumultuous. And so the board ultimately brought in Jamie Dimon. I, I, I talk about it merging with Jamie, mm-hmm. you know, because th- this, this combination was a terrible cultural fit. It was almost viewed as a, a Tiffany buys Walmart combination. <laughs> the, the egos were not, were not happy with it. And Jamie did a great job of sort of reminding people that the enemy was outside the business. But he quickly uncovered where the merger had not executed the way it meant to. One of those was in the client, the wealth management area, right. where we had lots of great skills in terms of trust and private banking and all of these elements, but no general practitioner. Right. It was like we were running a hospital with no folks who could who could look at the patient holistically. And so one of the first things I did in that job was to identify who can be the point person so that you can you know, cross-sell and deliver a, a much fuller array of products than just you know the, the single products we were offering. You know, it's fascinating because there's the practice of investing and then there's the business of investing, and they're two very different things. I would imagine it's very similar in banking. There's the practice of banking and then the business of running a bank. You're, what you're describing where the folks at, at uh, Bank One were, were better at the former than the latter. Is that a fair way to say it? This was, this was an organization that had grown by acquisition. Mm-hmm. And so the mindset was always buy revenue, cut expense, buy revenue, cut expense. And so long as you can keep doing that, you, you leave some fundamentals undealt with. Right. And when you stop the roll-up, then you have to look at how do you how do you integrate it or, or in some cases spin things off, but I, but I'll tell you my timing couldn't have been worse, Barry. I took that job in early two thousand and basically rode the market down. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you nothing teaches you more about how things work than watching them not work on the way down. And so it was really eye opening to see how overconfidence turns into you know, panic as we went through the, the dot-com bubble. So you're first. anticipating my next question. It, it was, your first book was Moods and Markets. The second book is all about confidence. What led to this interest in that aspect of behavioral finance? Was it the asset-backed securities? Was it watching a roll-up entity? Or was it the dot-com collapse that sent asset prices, depending on where you were invested. I, I like to p- remind people 
NASDAQ fell peak to trough, 81%. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, big whack. That's Great Depression yeah. uh, level fall. Yeah, I, I, I would say that, that my interest didn't arise until the great financial crisis. You know, I had left the industry. My, my, I turned 45 and my son said halfway, your dad, you're halfway to 90. And kind of horrifying, right? Kind of a tough, you know, punch to the gut. Right. The and better, so, other way to look at it is, all right, I made it this yeah. far. So, so far, so good. So this was 2006. For the first time in my adult life, I had the opportunity to move away from the f- trees and start to see the forest. Uh-huh. And to see what was happening in the mortgage space, to your point, ninja loans right. and, and the wildness there. And then to watch as sentiment started to fall, how things started to come apart. And I ended up advising some hedge funds because my background as a treasurer, bank treasurer, I dealt with the rating agencies, I'd securitize stuff. I mean, I, I knew how things go bad, having spent a lot of time in troubled banks at my time at J.P. Morgan. And so what interested me as Lehman collapsed and what was going on was this sense that the crisis isn't done. We're moving a lot of risk from the private sector to the public sector, but we have an eliminated risk. And at the same time, everybody's saying things are getting going to get worse, and now the market starts to turn up. Right. And that combination of the crowd saying things are only going to get worse and the market going up was a game changer for me. It's like, well, uh, the, the term capitulation means surrender. Yeah. Right? So when everybody throws in the towel, you know, I, I love asking people, you know, if they're bullish or bearish as the first question. And then the second question is, what was your last transaction in the market? And invariably, if they're bullish, they just bought something. And if they're bearish, they just sold something. Yeah. And it's a chicken and egg issue. Are they bullish because they bought something or did they buy something because they're bullish? Sometimes it's hard to tease the two apart. It's entirely reflexive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I say a lot, our confidence level, our stories, and our actions exist in equilibrium at all times. That I, I don't care which is chicken or egg. I just know that if I talk to Barry Ritholtz and I know what you're doing, I know what your story is and I know how you feel. And I can pick one of the three and pretty well deduce what the other two are likely to be. You know, the old... Um Uh, trader's aphorism is news follows price, meaning when the stocks are going up, the the narratives are great. And when the prices are going down, the narratives are are usually negative. Uh, Although I have a vivid recollection in the beginning of the Iraq war, um, oil prices had spiked uh, the same day the U.S. accidentally bombed an important mosque. And that was a headline. Uh, Air Force accidentally destroys a uh, mosque, um, causing oil prices to spike. By the end of the day, oil prices had come back down and got negative. So the online headlines were, U.S. bombs my uh, mosque accidentally, oil prices uh, fall. It's like, well, which was it? Or, or maybe are these just wholly unrelated things and we're trying to create a story? Yeah, I, I always feel sorry for the, the daily news writers when you see major market reverses, because to watch them contort themselves to 
create a comfortable narrative is it's 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 humorous right it's it's all hindsight bias and and narrative fallacy and and storytelling so so one of the things i was surprised to learn as i was reading your background you say you build on the insights of Robert Prechter's work in socioeconomics. Socionomics. Socionomics. I, I've always pronounced that wrong. Yep. So a long time ago, I read Prechter's Perspectives and was very influenced by his concept of the long cycle. You come out of World War II, all these GIs are returning to the U.S., there's the GI Bill sending them to college, we're building out suburbia, the rise of car culture, the rise of... Um, just the middle class, and that cycle seems to go a long time and last a while. H how did Prechter's work affect you? So in 2010, he did an interview for an organization called Minionville. Oh, sure, Todd and Harrison. Todd Harrison, yep. yep. And I had been writing for Minionville, and I listened to Bob talk, and he said something that I had not paid much attention to before, which was a reversal in causality, uh -huh. which is we tend to look at events causing us to change our feelings. Bob's recommendation and, and the, the foundation for socionomics is look at the mood before things happen. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it made so much sense to me that of course we act as we feel. And if I could then figure out what is consistent in those actions and connect them to feelings, then that might be something really useful as whether it was in consulting or trading to be able to, to connect the preferences to the choices we make and how we feel. So how does one go about measuring mood? How can you measure the sentiment of the public? It's not especially uniform. It seems to fluctuate. And as we've learned, we can't always trust what people say. Yeah, so I, I look at it very qualitatively mm -hmm. um, because mood is a feeling. And so the qualitative pieces matter more than the data to us. Uh, data, we always have to interpret data. And so our feelings determine how we interpret. You know, 65 degrees can feel both warm and cool. But what I try to do is to look at the stories and stories are a great indicator of how we feel because our imagination of the future, the stories we tell, perfectly mirror how we feel. Confidence is forward-looking. Uh -huh. And so my imagination of what's coming is going to be a reflection on my, my mood right now. And the media does a great job of letting me know what those stories are. Twitter and social media does a spectacular job. So does Google. I mean, mm -hmm. Google searches, I'm a big user of Google Trends. It helps me to see what's the crowd interested? What are the stories we tell? And, and the word choices. So, so recently I see the word relentless being applied to the rise in interest rates as we're you know, coming to an end of the third quarter of 2023. Well, relentless is a word that doesn't show up right. in stories until it's beginning to feel like something significant is about to happen. Right. And, and if we're going to be objective and put some numbers on it, as much as we all would prefer lower rates, we've had uh, 18, 19 months of rising rates, and rates are now back to where they've averaged over the past 50 years. Yeah. So if you're being bloodless about it, 
hey, rates have returned to normal fairly quickly. Yeah. And yet it doesn't feel that way. But I can also look at the behavior of bond investors mm -hmm. and look at the stampede that took place two years ago into negative yielding bonds and the stories that went along that and the confidence that investors had. And, Me and Meaning at the very peak of the bond bull market just before the reversal took place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could you could see this sense of permanence and power that, that you know nothing was going to be able to raise interest rates at that point, and so you had a story that perfectly aligned with negative interest, negative yielding interest rates that was overlooked because of the the excitement that was happening in the markets. And bond prices at record highs. So, so how do you tease out of these broad events in society what what the underlying nugget of um, important signal is? I, I, you had yeah. a tweet that cracked me up. I I, I want to share. When confidence is low, cars are round. Yeah. So I started to think about that, and you have some of these ugly old Citrons and. Uh, the cute VW Beetle, and then later on the Pacer. Yeah. Um, there have been some pretty round and not necessarily beautiful cars over the years. What's the correlation? So I, I have to give credit to Mark Galaszewski, who works with Bob Prechter in the, uh -huh. on Socionomics, because Mark did this fabulous study that shows that cars are soft, they're round, huh. um, their colors are bland, uh, even though the woody you know, if you think about sure. that, that's another low confidence uh, indicator. And then you, you go to the other extreme and you have chrome, right? very angular. Jaguar E-type, yeah. just uh, long, long lean, beautiful. Wide. Uh -huh. uh, you know, big engines. You know, you look at the Hummer. You know, right. that, that was a classic. You know, that would be an indicator of, of huge sentiment. Huh, really, really interesting. You know what? Uh, you know, the, the Maybach is one of my favorite indicators because it it sort of comes and goes at these extraordinary um, moments in history. Uh, is is that how you think about cars like the Hummer or the Maybach as just votes of confidence to, to, as to the near future? Yeah, um, you know, you, the the Phaeton from Volkswagen again. I recall terribly that. timed V twelve, yeah. big long seven series competitor. Yeah, we we you know the the car companies want to deliver Uber luxury to everybody at the top. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time looking at LVMH because I think there's no better real time indicator for the financial elite. People and, give me grief because I track. Rolex and Patek prices mm -hmm. and Ferrari and Porsche prices, there are a bunch of services that track that. It's like, why are you so obsessed on watches and cars? No, I'm obsessed with what the top 1% or 10% yeah. does because what they do is going to trickle down to the rest of the – I don't mean trickle down in a Reagan sense, but – their behavior has a huge impact on the rest of the economy. Absolutely. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so there are indicators to me to all levels of the economy. So if I want to look at the upper middle class, I'll look at a Carnival Cruise Line because travel uh -huh. requires us to plan, to, to have, an, again, a strong imagination of the future. We're going to, to foreign commit places. commit some money. We're committing. It's not, it's not an insignificant amount of money. Right. And so that, that becomes a great bellwether for me in terms of how's, how are those that are not 
you know, the 1%, but those that are doing well, how are they faring? So I'm glad you mentioned Carnival Cruise Lines because there's something that's been perplexing me, and I don't want to just dumb it down to explain it, but sometimes dumbing it down does explain it. On the one hand, when we look at sentiment measures of the U.S. population, never been more negative. Worse than 9-11, worse than the financial crisis, worse than the pandemic. People are super negative. And yet at the same time, we have record boat sales, pleasure craft. I don't mean like Carnival Cruise Line. I mean 20, 25, 30, 40 foot boats. If you're going to go out and buy a boat, you're spending a lot of money. The boat is the cheapest part of boating. The the slip, the winterizing, the maintenance. They're just boating is not a cheap hobby. I don't understand why so many people are saying they're negative, and yet so many people are going out and buying boats. Or are these just two different demographic cohorts? So I think there are multiple demographic cohorts, and I and I wouldn't discount that today. I they, bet there's a big overlap, though. That's my they, sense. And, when I see the like the MAGA yeah. armadas, everything is terrible with the MAGA signs on their boats. It can't be that bad if you're in a 40-foot yacht on, on the lake. Yeah, and, and Gallup and... Um, you know the University of Michigan. Everybody's looked at the the political impact on on sentiment surveys. A lot of it's just partisan. It's, it's partisan. And and in fairness, that this has been the case for quite a while. I mean, yeah, but it's gotten much much worse. It's gotten far worse. You know, the last time the parties felt the same mm-hmm. was really the Great Financial Crisis. Coming out of that, you saw recovery on the part of Democrats, but no recovery whatsoever among Republicans, which- In terms of sentiment. In terms of sentiment. Uh And so, you know, when people talk about, well, where did Donald Trump come from? When you look at consumer sentiment by political category, it becomes very evident what was behind that. You know, eight years of, of Republicans feeling the same way they felt the weekend Lehman Brothers collapsed. So so let's talk about that for a second, because I've heard this and I just don't get it. When Lehman collapsed, uh, and I, I'm not a believer that Lehman caused the financial crisis, it was merely the first trailer in the trailer park that the tornado took. Um, but everybody had eaten the same bad food at the buffet, to mix metaphors. There were genuine moments of terror. Like I was in New York City, yeah. people were very frightened. Um, I remember uh, the the head of my firm saying, you got to stop spiking the football because there's blood in the streets and everybody's really uh, not doing well. And that was a moment of like just genuine financial panic, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, kept going for another six months until the market made their lows in March of 2009. That was September of 2008. And then you look around today, and listen, nobody is thrilled with the state of, nobody likes either of the two leading candidates, Biden mm-hmm. or Trump, to record negatives. You, you have all sorts of problems in the country, but can you really compare the state of the economy and three point something percent unemployment to unemployment over 10%? People are concerned yeah. the ATM isn't going to work. How is that comparable to what's going on today? It isn't if you measure it in terms of economic conditions. Uh But confidence is about vulnerability, relative vulnerability. And I think that there are a lot of Americans who feel especially vulnerable. They feel culturally vulnerable. They feel religiously vulnerable. They feel 
you know, in terms of uh, issues of gender. And and so I, I think that what a lot of our huh. quote unquote economic confidence indicators are picking up is vulnerability that is far more fundamental to people's lives. And I think one of the mistakes that economists have been making is they're attributing too much of these indicators to economic connections rather than to the social and political connections that we're seeing that are you know, quite profound. So let's stay with that theme of political disenfranchisement and uh, fear and nervousness about changes in society. Uh, when I look around at the sociological and demographic changes that have been taking place recently, they're the end of product of trends that have been around for decades. Mm -hmm. So so the U.S. has becoming increasingly diverse, right? You and I are a bunch of old white males. Uh, we used to be the dominant majority, then now we're a plurality, and eventually we're going to be a large minority. That That trend has been in place for decades, the country kind of swings back and forth between the left and the right. Uh, I think what what's happened is the younger generations have always been more progressive, but now the younger generations are, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s generations from those decades are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and very often are in charge of organizations. Isn't a lot of what's going on just the culmination of things that are a long time coming? And I'm not saying people shouldn't be unaware of it. It just seems funny that, you know, post-pandemic, uh, okay, now it's here and we all, all need to freak out. Yeah, I, I, I look at the roots of this as having been sown in a comparable tumultuous time in the late 1960s, early 70s. Half a century ago. Yeah. And so you had, huh. I mean, think about the concerns that folks had in the early 1960s. You you have the issue of civil rights. You have, you know, Stonewall. You know, Gay you, rights, civil rights, yeah, women's, women's rights. Women's rights. So, straight so, down the list. And so you have those who have felt vulnerable for a prolonged period of time saying, I've had enough. But and, the groups that seem to be making, and maybe this is my, so... I'm college educated. I went to grad school. I live in a major East Coast city. I make a decent living. So I don't think of myself as uh, the typical middle American. And so I will own up to, hey, that's my, you know, I love the Woody Allen line from Annie Hall, uh, elitist New York Jewish socialist summer yep. camp, like that funny, funny line. But I know I don't see the world like a middle American. But that said, a, a lot of the folks who seem most upset about what's going on, uh, none of this is new. If, if you're in West Virginia and used to work in the coal mine, hey, is it a surprise that coal is going away? Am I am I too glib when I say that? Or it, 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 Yes, I think, I think you are. Because if I think about those that are feeling vulnerable, they have clear senses of scarcity. Uh-huh. They have job scarcity. They have relative health scarcity. They have mobility scarcity. I mean, the, the, the abundance that those who have gained over the past 50 years, they now see as having come at their expense. And this is something 
that we see a lot when confidence is low. We acquire what I call zero-sum thinking, where I now attribute my misfortune to your gain. That's interesting. That you somehow benefited at my expense. So we saw something very similar to this in the 80s and 90s as a lot of manufacturing jobs went overseas. And at the same time, uh, the finance world, the banks, the private equity, the venture firms that were essentially financing these changes did exceedingly well. And so if you were if you worked in a, in a clothing factory or a furniture factory or even a, a steel or auto plant um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, a lot of those jobs were, were shipped to cheaper labor overseas and an entirely different group of people benefited. Is that some of the underlying animus Absolutely. across political, um, although it's hard to tell because a lot of, very often it's almost like Russian nesting dolls, yeah. that it's not a clear Venn diagram of this blue circle and, and that yellow circle. There's a lot of green overlap in the middle. Yeah, I, and, I, and I say to my, my friends in politics that the, the biggest divide is not left-right, it's up-down. And I, I not, have said that for decades and felt like I was a lonely yeah. voice. It's not left versus right. It's who owns the means of production and what your role is. Are you a, are you a capitalist owner or right. are you a wage slave? Yeah. And I mean, not, not to, again, not to be too glib, but that's what's determined the winners and losers in, in our economy. Yeah, and, and the pandemic only heightened that. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the K-shaped recovery because I that phrase is a evolution of something that I started writing about in March of 2020, which was the work from home confidence divide. Talk about an awkward mouthful. Uh-huh. But you could see even before the month was out that those who could work in an office and migrate to home. Meaning you had a computer at home, you had access to high-speed internet, yeah. and you had a space where you could physically work. work. That's not everybody. It's a very small population when you look at right. U.S. If, employment. If you're, if you're in a rural area that doesn't have broadband, yeah. if you're in an inner, inner city where you might not have, forget internet, you might not have a computer, yeah. big swaths of the population did not have access to work from home. No, and, and we have a delivery system today that is extraordinarily enabling of that, from Amazon to Instacart. Those at the top, the pandemic became an inconvenience. But let's talk about those that were serving those at the top. Right. From meaning, meaning medical people, delivery people, restaurant workers, food supermarket service, staffers, transportation, food prep. You know, all you know, the factory, you know, the chicken factories in Delaware, they didn't close. And so it's to me, it's not a surprise at all that where we're seeing work stoppages and strikes and protests are highly concentrated in people who felt intensely vulnerable during the pandemic mm -hmm. and saw the rest of the world living a, a life that was unattainable to them. And so what concerns me, Barry, is not the depth of consumer confidence falling. It's the duration of it. You know, you can, you can hold your breath underwater, whether it's 10 feet or 100 feet, you know, for a short period of time. But eventually, you got to breathe. And so all of the focus and sentiment is missing 
the compounding effect of duration. And I, and I talk a lot about this, this notion of stacked vulnerabilities, where it's not one thing those at the bottom are struggling with. It's multiple things, one on top of the next, on top of the next, on top of the next. And so when you look at the social movements like Black Lives Matter that occurred when confidence was terribly low, you have this, this triggering event that on the surface was relatively minor. I mean, we, we'd seen so many instances of people right. being— it was, but How many young black men yeah. were murdered over, by cops over the yeah. past? The difference is everyone has iPhones now, and so there was video of a lot of these. And everybody was already feeling— stacked vulnerabilities one on top of the next. So let me push back a little bit economically on this. And I, I just want to uh, take the other side of the argument um, to, to flesh this out. So we have the great financial crisis, 08, 09, and essentially the banks were rescued. The average American, not so much. Mm -hmm. uh, rates were taken down uh, to zero, and that helped anything priced in dollars or credit. So owners of capital and owners of stocks, bonds, and real estate, they did great. The average American, not so much. And you could see that in the data. Mediocre recovery from 09 to, let's call it, 14, 15. Mm -hmm. um, weak GDP, subpart job creation, little wage gains. Consumer spending was mediocre. And, and by the way, the bulk of the government action was monetary. We're going to drive rates low, fiscal stimulus really mild. Then comes the pandemic. You have the biggest fiscal stimulus in U.S. history, over 10% of GDP, bigger than on a relative basis than the start of World War II, um, $2.2 under Trump, then another $800 billion under Trump, then another $900 billion under Biden, and then all the Biden programs, the semiconductors, the mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure, the Inflation Act. So suddenly we go from all monetary, no fiscal, to all fiscal and some monetary. And as it turns out, the fiscal stimulus falls into the hands of the middle class and the lower class. Their savings rates go up, their spending goes up, inflation goes up. Aren't these two very different sets of circumstances, the post-financial crisis and the post-pandemic era? Isn't the middle and lower class better off? I think, I think unemployment... During the lockdown, peaked in June of 21 at $1.6 trillion, a crazy number. Whereas the average American had to fend for themselves post-financial crisis. Why are people more upset now than they were? I mean, what was Occupy Wall Street? What was that? Six months, a year? And it was forgotten about. Yeah. But again, it, was, it occurred at a major low in confidence. Again, these spontaneous social movements are... are wonderful pinpoint moments that highlight when consumer confidence is low. So I'm focusing on the economics, yeah. but what you're really saying is, despite the rescue plan, it hasn't really moved the needle on on the confidence level. No, and, and part of that is, to, the, to those at the bottom, it was a necessary oxygen mask. Right. But think about where that money went. It went to rent. It went to car payments. Basic, sub, basic it, survival things. Right. Food, but, medicine, rent. But that was it. it. And it went through. Energy. It went through them. It didn't stay with them. It allowed them to catch their breath. Right. Allowed them to survive to when survive, everybody was out of a job. But 
those at the bottom were under no illusion that it was temporary. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I want to get to the book, but before I get to the book, I got to ask a political question, which is, what was the impact of the January 6th um, attack on the Capitol on the confidence of the nation? Because everybody kind of forgets the first days after that, I think everybody was really shaken up. And then the story kind of changed. I look at January 6th a little differently. January 6th is what happens when a large group sees a sense of powerlessness and uncertainty and feels defeated and needs to act. Well, let me let, let's address that because a large group is defeated every four years. And normally they go back to their jobs and say, we'll get them next time. Yeah. This group did not feel that way. And if you watch but, the video, it's pretty clear they're hell-bent on stopping yeah. the transition transition of power. Yeah. And, this was very unusual. So but, what led to that? Let's, let's keep the politics out of it. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking at sentiment. To me, no one should have been surprised by what happened. Really? Yeah. And why? Because there huh. are five natural reactions that we have in those moments. Mm-hmm. Fight and flight we're familiar with. For sure. The other, follow, and there was a lot of that going on. For sure. Freeze, and there was a little bit of that. And then the last one, if you'll pardon my French, is the F word, where we just say F it. Huh. And so we should have been expecting all of that to manifest in that moment. The groups had been primed for it. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, you you go back and look at the messaging. The The message boards were on fire. The the FBI has subsequently revealed there was a lot of chatter. Stories, feelings, actions exist in equilibrium, Barry. And that was absolutely a situation where the stories and feelings naturally manifested in that behavior. I look at that moment. Not any different than I look at other spontaneous social events, you know, the Arab Spring, you know, this is what right. happens. Comes They're in triggered that. by something that's relatively insignificant Random, in right. that. Yeah. yeah. And so th- your, your point, then confidence fell. It depended on which side of the political spectrum you were on, because at that moment you had confidence among Republicans being impacted by the failed attempt. At the same time, you had Democrats feeling vulnerable because of this underlying sense of threat. And so you saw in the data, you know, January 2021 is not a pretty sentiment indicator of of mood, just given what was what was happening. Quite, Quite fascinating. You know success when you see it or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, so let's talk a little bit about the confidence map. Essentially, your argument is a hidden factor driving both human decision making and broad economic decision making is confidence. Uh, that thesis seems like a big lift. Explain it. Yeah, it is a big lift. But I think, first of all, we have to come up with an accurate definition of confidence. Okay. Because we, we end up getting caught up in a lot of confidence theater, you know, the appearance of, you know, entertainers and sports figures, sort of the, the bravado of, of, of culture. And we also mix it with self-esteem and self-confidence. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about our, our feeling relationship with the world around us. And in the... Meaning how confident we are about our ability to survive, thrive, et cetera, in the world around us. Yeah, to, to navigate what's ahead. So if we think about that, then it becomes, what does that really mean? And to be successful in that, I need to feel that things are predictable, that, I, that there is a sense of certainty to what will happen next. And that could be because I can extrapolate from the past, but I, I need to have a vision of a clear road ahead of me. Why is that so important? Because think about... Through most of human history, everything has been uncertain. You know, you didn't have local police or a military. You never knew when the next tribe over was going to come and take your food and your women and chop your head off and go on with their lives. Why is certainty so important? Because we abhor randomness. To not have a sense of predictability means that everything is potentially random, which means that I have to be on alert. And that's exhausting. Stressful, tiring, just, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, so, so you, you're having to, you know, just survey the landscape all the time. And, and, you know, COVID is a great example where the visibility that people had was, was negligible. And so, so knowing what's coming next, or at least thinking we do, is vital. The second piece of that is a sense of control that I have the skills, the resources, the preparation, the training, whatever I need to be able to succeed. So having a clear road is great if I'm behind the wheel, but knowing how to drive is as important. Sure. And so the only way we're confident is when those two feelings coincide, when I feel that I know what's coming and I've got it. Those feelings are what give me a sense of confidence. So so I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but I want to point out maybe the exceptions. In my world, people are confident about things they shouldn't be. 
They see certitude in things that are random. They claim to understand what's coming next when the reality is they haven't the slightest idea. How do you transfer studying societal confidence to a field like investing when uh, my definition is investing is a probabilistic exercise using unreliable information about an inherently unknowable future? Yeah. Meaning wherever you look, there's uh, no certitude, lack of, of predictability. How do you apply confidence to the world of investing? Yeah, so I teach a class in financial economics at William & Mary. And the first day of class, you know, what what is it about finance that makes its difference? It's, you know, it's decision-making where the outcome is to be determined. So whether I'm lending, borrowing, investing. And so anytime I'm doing that, I am deluding myself if I do feel confident because all investment decisions are made in an environment where I have control but no certainty. In my book, I call that the launch pad. It's control but, but no, no certainty. certainty. Okay. And so if I'm talking to a group of investors, I'm challenging them with their belief that they should be confident in the first place. So what's the story you're telling yourself, Barry, if you're buying something? Well, now you're imagining the future. Now you're creating this vivid picture of what the future looks like. And to the extent that you're really certain, what that's saying to me is you're risking being delusional, both if you're certain it's going to be you know, unicorns and rainbows or if it's going to be the depths of hell. Right. So, so when you're making an investment decision, it's okay to plan for the future that you imagine but you need to be prepared for the future that you can't imagine. But to appreciate that, that you're making a decision in an environment that is not confidence. So I, I don't disagree with any of the things you're saying. How can we use the general lack of certainty? Uh, how can we evaluate what at least what people say about their confidence level, their, their certitude, to help us make investment decisions? Yeah, so the, the more certain the crowd, the less likely the outcome. If I look at extremes in sentiment, there is not only a certainty of what's coming, the expectation is it's prolonged, mm -hmm. it's powerful, it's unstoppable. Uh, you know, the word unstoppable is one that always catches my breath. You know, when, when Time Magazine put unstoppable, you know, can Hillary Clinton be stopped? It was like, no, she's done. So appreciate that these, these narratives, there's force to them. There's, there's a real strong energy to the narratives that is mirrored in in decision making and action that reflects this unbridled you know disregard for any kind of risk management because i'm i know what's coming that the, the headlines around SPACs in early 2021 were were extraordinary in terms of this, this cornucopia of clear certainty of what was ahead. That that that's pretty fair. In fact, the the there's rarely consensus in the marketplace, but when there is, uh, I always like to point out it's right before a major reversal. Yeah. So early 2000, hey, it was pretty clear that trees grow to the sky. Go to March 09, it's clear the market's going to zero, right? Who's ever going to be on the other side of your trade? The consensus when everybody agrees is Okay, who's left to sell at that point, right? Yeah, and there, there's another angle to it, which is you're an idiot if you don't agree. That comes a little earlier, though. But there's, there's, like, there's, think about the FOMO trade yeah. in crypto. 
that uh, have fun being poor. Poor. Yeah. Right. That was forty, fifty, not quite sixty thousand, uh, but it was close. Yeah. It was on the way up. Yeah. And so you you see these same behavioral traits, same narratives, over and over and over. And in my book, what makes them so wonderful is I can put a pin in it. I, I can identify, oh, we're, we're around here just based on the stories, the actions. So, so let's talk about something. You mentioned the, the COVID pandemic. In the book, you have uh, like a six-year chart of the corporate mentions of the word unprecedented. And essentially, it's the bottom of the chart. It's just scooping along the bottom for years and then by the time you get to June, July of 2020, it spikes and stays up for the better part of the next year or so. And and ironically, as COVID-19 might have been unprecedented in the modern era, a century earlier, we had a national influenza pandemic, a respiratory yeah. illness. COVID wasn't as unprecedented as people thought. No, and... and- there's nothing unprecedented about the nature of our response, the nature of our stories, the nature of our feelings. It was history rhyming in so many ways. The beauty of the word unprecedented is it became shorthand for almost whatever we wanted it to mean. For executives, it became this universal get out of jail free card. Because our earnings and revenue stink because of this unprecedented. unprecedented. You know, how could I have been expected to be prepared for this? Right. And, and we see this over and over and over. I, and a few pages later, I put up the chart that shows the same terminology was used during 2008, during the financial crisis. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, once again, we have this unprecedented catastrophe. And, and we accept that because it mirrors the way we feel at the same time. Ray Dalio has this wonderful definition of unprecedented. He says unprecedented means you're too young to have remembered. It hasn't happened in your lifetime, but if you look at history, it certainly has happened before. Uh, Nothing new is under the sun. No. The, The means at which we express our level of vulnerability or euphoria may change, but the the actions and the, the underlying nature of the behaviors, the preferences um, are all the same. Uh, quite, quite, quite amazing. So let's talk a little bit about Launchpad. You mentioned the Launchpad environment. Explain what, what that means. Yeah, so there are four environments that I highlight in my book that, that relate to our mix of certainty and control. Mm-hmm. The comfort zone where we have both of them, the stress center where we have neither of them. And when you say certainty and control, uh, one's an x-axis, one's a y-axis, y-axis. you have four quadrants yep. of either high certainty and high control, low certainty and low, low control, control, and then and, one and, or the other. And so most people, when they think about confidence, think about those two boxes. High certainty, high control. control and, and low certainty, low control. It's like a buy one, get one free. <laughs> the, the reality is that our lives give us moments where we have one but not the other. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've taught your kids to drive, right. that's an environment where you have certainty but no control. And then suddenly it can go from feeling really good in the passenger seat to feeling terrifying. Right. It's the same thing on an airplane. I call it the passenger seat for that reason. The, the launch pad is an environment where we have control but no certainty. Uh, you could think about this as a rock climber rising up a, a cliffside. Uh-huh. And so the, the issue is, do I 
plummet to my death back into the stress center or do I safely navigate it into the comfort zone? It's the, the classic hero's journey is comfort zone, stress centers, launch pad, you know, back into the, into the comfort zone. Right. The launch pad is important because a lot of our decision-making is there. Anytime we set off on a journey, anytime we're investing, we're, we're making choices without knowing what's ahead. And, and organizations go back and forth between liking those environments and not. Entrepreneurs love that environment. You know, give them a steering wheel and they'll put the car in forward, reverse, you know, whatever it takes. They, they love that, that area. So, so let's take this to the 10,000-foot view. Can we look at uh, historic economic cycles and see how confidence waxes and wanes? And can we use that to extrapolate forward from uh, where we are currently? Yeah, so I, I think of us as going on this trolley car ride from the peak of the upper right corner of the comfort zone to the bottom of the lower left side of the of the stress center and that we just go back and forth in terms of you know economists think of that as cycles i think of it in this sort of well linear, if it's moving it's a sine wave and, and if it's the quadrants you're back yeah, and forth you're just back and forth and you can see it and and one of the easiest ways to see it barry is in our preferences because so what, what, what sort of preferences give us examples so what we want when confidence is low, mm -hmm. is all about me here now. So if there's a problem, if I'm feeling vulnerable, if there's a bear outside my tent, the only thing that now matters is me in this moment right here. And that has a big bearing on the choices that I make. I'm not- So, so personal, local, and present. And present. Right now. Yeah. So my decision-making is impulsive, maybe tactical, but it's sure not strategic. Uh -huh. It's reactive. It is focused on what's good for me. And if it's bad for you, too bad. If it's bad for tomorrow, too bad. I'm Right now I'm dealing with a bear. I'm, I'm dealing with what I got. But whether it's a real bear or a market bear, bear it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. And so, and there's another element to it, which is I need things to be concrete. That, that psychologists use the term hypotheticality. I hate that word. Right. But everything I want when confidence is low has to be really concrete. It's why we it's why we hoard physical cash. We we get the the water from Costco. We you know we you're, want. You're it. talking Maslow hierarchy of yeah. needs like food, shelter, yeah. you know, uh, heat, energy, uh, just real basic stuff. Yeah. And and it's here. The the, the cash in the huh. bank isn't close enough. So to your point, you know, why are you going to the ATM on the day Lehman collapsed? Because the bank that was around the corner is too far away from you. I want the cash in the mattress. In fact, during the and, Greek- And who knows if the bank is even going to work on yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, in the Greek crisis, they were selling mattresses with pre-installed safes. Come on. No. Really? Yeah. But, but, but so let's think about our preferences today. <laughs> That's we, amazing. We have a whole industry geared towards me here now preferences. Netflix. Keurig, all of the iPhone, iPod, you know, everything is geared to deliver what I want when I want now. I, I can't wait for instant gratification. Yeah. I need it sooner. Right. And so uh, Amazon, New York City, same hour delivery. Yeah. Twitter is another. I mean, talk about me here now manifestations of decision making. It, you know, it, it's called X now. Excuse so. me. I, but it's the same thing. It's yeah. that instant dopamine the, hit. I yeah. want it right now. I want it right now. Huh. And so we're 
you know, if I look at our culture, it's an incredibly me here now environment. And if I look at its impact, take pre and post pandemic, uh-huh. we go from just in time supply chain delivery to just in case to nearshoring. Right. So suddenly I want my warehouses, my manufacturing. You know, you look at Europe, you know, during the energy crisis last summer, suddenly national energy policies, national manufacturing policies, national security policy, that the the our willingness to rely on complex global systems evaporates in a crisis. We want to be sure that what we need is available within arm's length. How much of this is just uh, generals fighting the last war? Listen, just-in-time inventory clearly proved itself to be problematic, and nearshoring or even building plants here in the U.S. is a solution to that. But it always feels like uh, anybody who looked at this issue knew this was a problem. Nobody believed it until after a crisis. Right, and that's that's always the nature of it. So so we build bigger, wider, further distributing, you know, the, the change. We, we create this complexity. We, we saw this in the in the mortgage world where, right, you know, right. we, we mortgage, pieces of mortgages going from here to there. CDO squared yeah. and on and on. And at the same time, it's, it's like a Jenga tower, whereas we're building it taller and taller, we're also taking pieces out because we think we can create even greater and greater efficiency. Right. And... I joke a lot that our level of scrutiny and our confidence levels are inversely related. The more confident I am, the less I have to focus, so the less I do focus. So so let's address me here now. What's the opposite of that? Is that we there later? What, what is I, the opposite? I, I, I say us everywhere forever. Us everywhere forever. Yeah. So, so when does confidence signal us everywhere. For, was that a late 2000s thing? Because uh, confidence was so-so in the late 2000s, 2020s also. So so a lot of futuristic investing. And I, and I would say early 2021, we saw a wonderful bubble of it in terms of EVs and space and SPACs. And what, what about today with uh, AI and large language models? Is that a very long-distance confidence it, sort of thing? It is, but what's so interesting to me, Barry, is our picks of the companies that we're interested in. So in 2021, our intrigue with futuristic technology led us to buy startups, you know, companies that didn't even exist at that point. Today, we're buying shares of Amazon and Google and, and Apple, the, the, the thorough The magnificent seven, yeah. as people and, call And that. to me, that's a real telling indicator that we're not as confident today as we were. because That's if, very interesting. You know, in other words, the, the focusing on the biggest, best, most well-established companies is a sign of a lack of self-confidence, whereas the remaining 493 companies in the S&P 500 we're ignoring, and, and that's a sign of that, that lack of future expectations. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at the, the, the gap between the, you know, the, the small cap index and the, the mega cap. As large as it's ever been. Ever been. And that, that is us, our natural preference for you know, certainty in, in cash flow and earnings and you know, 
it, it, it we we know those brands and those products. Huh. And, and so Fa- that's fascinating. So I had recalled during the um, the pandemic lockdown, the first few months, I went back and looked at some history because when you see the pandemic and the thirty four percent market drop, you know you go back and look at history for non market related non economic issues terrorist attacks and wars and presidential assassinations and, you know, tsunamis and just something that comes from outside the financial system. You know, I jokingly said the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs had the same impact. Historically, you could look at about four dozen of these. What happens is markets wobble and then they continue doing what they were doing before. So uh, when 9-11 happened, markets were falling beforehand, they wobble, and then they continue to fall. When the pandemic happened, markets were rising, they wobbled, and then they really recovered very rapidly. So so I, I wrote a column for Bloomberg that unfortunately was published April 1st, uh, April Fool's Day of 2020, don't assume the pandemic has ended the bull market. I have never gotten more hate mail for anything I've written since before or since. And and the irony is I wasn't saying go buy him. I was just saying don't assume it's over because here's what history came before. And by the way, that turned out to be correct. And we got a lot of pushback from clients. I don't understand my dry cleaners closing, the local movie theater shut, the local retailer shut. Yeah, but those guys aren't in the S&P 500. Look at what's in the S&P 500. Microsoft, Apple, hey, you could work from home. Uh, Netflix and DocuSign and Peloton and all of those companies did really well. And the ones that survived were the ones that continued to operate after the pandemic. So Teladoc and Peloton and DocuSign uh, and to some degree Netflix they all got shellacked after we reopened, mm-hmm. but the big tech companies have held up well. How much of this is just they're addressing the market versus concern about uh, uncertainty, so we're going to stick with the tried and true? I, I think that we saw a major peak in early 2021 in terms of enthusiasm, all the, the speculative bubble. Right. We're seeing a less robust peak people are running people are running out of savings all the pandemic uh largesse is is now fading that pig is through the python yeah um we've also connected mood between stocks and bonds One Uh one of the things that was so interesting to me about early 2021 is we had a reasonably coincident peak in bond prices and stock enthusiasm at the same time. Right. You had a 40-year bull market in bonds, bonds that came to an end. And you know, you had that, that I blame fiscal, um, but there are a lot of other theories for why inflation spiked and started that, yeah. that uh, tightening round by the Fed. But there's no doubt uh, the bond market ended around the same bull market ended yeah. a, a, around the same time Fine. the post-pandemic bull market and, uh, and, slowed. And so we have this declining confidence in stocks and bonds at the same time. and Which is, I, last time we had that was 40 years ago. Yeah. And 
people look at their diversified pie charts and see all these different asset classes. I look at those pie charts differently to say, how's the sentiment aligning with all of these? Uh Because we have a lot of cooling sentiment in many, many pieces of the pie at the same time. Really, really, that's quite fascinating. So so the world isn't black and white. There's a lot of subtlety and nuance, um, a spectrum of, of choices. But we all tend to reduce everything to yes, no, up, down, black or white choices. How, how can you look at confidence? How can you look at sentiment to help you make decisions when, when there's so many shades of gray? Yeah, so if I'm an investor, I think it's useful to look at the crowd sentiment rather than your own. We're not always good judges of our own behavior. And we can be more honest judges of others, sometimes you know, painfully honest. But market crowds tend to be almost like a middle school environment where it's, it's very social. I, I joke that you know, financial markets are social networks with money instead of likes we, we put money in right. or take it out. It's a popularity contest. It's a popularity contest. But no thumbs up. It's just no, cash. It's just cash. And, and and that becomes a useful way to look at where's the crowd putting money? Where's the crowd excited? Where's the crowd, you know, ooh, you wore that. You you're a you know, you can't sit with us. And so that that sort of middle school arrangement in the markets becomes a pretty honest sense of where the crowd broadly is. Are there managers who are, you know, on the other side of those trades? Absolutely. When I think about the market's mood, the market is a pretty quick deciding, homogeneous blob that is of average middle school intelligence. It cannot do system two thinking, to borrow from Kahneman. It's only capable of system one thinking. So you shouldn't try to, you know, don't try to be too smart. Just try to think, you know, how is the high school student thinking about this? So you're reminding me of the famous Benjamin Graham quote, in the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. So you get sentiment in the beginning, but later on, things should return to what their actual values are. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to overshoot. And particularly when confidence is low, we're likely to be much more impulsive, much more emotional than we might otherwise be. I think that was one of the lessons that people missed with meme stocks. That are, It wasn't about the stocks. It was about the, the mood at the moment. The mood and, and the willingness of people to jump into the crowd. You know, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd in the markets. And, and so we should not be surprised if what goes up like that also comes down like that. Huh, really, really quite interesting. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So let's talk a little bit about some recent market moods. We, we were talking about meme stocks. You know, the old timers like myself looked at the, the various meme stocks and kind of snickered to ourselves and said, I've seen this movie before. I know how it's going to end. And yet still... Those meme stocks did their thing. They exploded higher before ultimately they crashed and burned. Um, Where's AMC now? Down 99%, 98%. Um, a, a lot of the big meme stocks, uh, GameStop also way off its highs. When you see this starting during the lockdown, what are your thoughts about these meme stocks? What is that triggering you? Uh, two things. It's, it's sort of an interesting Com- uh, combination of both extremes and mood because you have the nihilism that naturally comes with low confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have folks who have cash to actually execute that nihilism and, and buy lottery tickets is you know, kind of what was going on. But you also have the novice and naive. And they're, they're a crowd I, I like to follow because they're always the last to the party. Right. And, and they're a great tell. In fact, more recently, we had a little flurry of meme stock behavior um, in, in the summer of 2023. It's a great indicator that we're reaching a climax in mood when, the, when it's amateur hour. M- meaning to the upside or to the downside? Both. Oh, really? Yeah, because sadly, the, the novice and naive are the last to buy. Uh-huh. They're also the last to sell. The last to capitulate. Someone's got to be on the wrong side of the trade. And so they buy at the extreme and they sell at the low and are just brutally punished as a result. But it's useful because bubbles unwind on a LIFO basis. Last in, first out. Last in, first out. So no surprise that the meme stocks and companies like Peloton have just been pummeled. The shots at the top and then they leave via a high story window. You, you know... If you've lived through this before, and I remember watching Teladoc and DocuSign and Peloton, all the work from home stocks, and I remember specifically saying, I know these are going to be moonshots, and I know they're going to be disasters. I'm not sure I'm confident enough that I'm going to get the timing right. right. And and I got to think a lot of other people looked at it similarly. Someone made a ton of money on the way up, and someone made a ton of money on the way down. And it may be the same people. Uh-huh. I mean, I, sadly, I think those that wrote it up also wrote it Got down. Got crushed and, on the way down. Yeah, and we've, we've seen the same thing in crypto, that sense that it, it's going to come back. You know, right. It's definitely going to come back. And, right. and That muscle memory fades after about a yeah. year of, of, of beating. Yep. And finally, you just stop yep. buying the dips. That that just goes away. So so let's now roll this into the, the 2023 fourth quarter 
environment, politics generally uh, has become darker and negative. But I don't ever recall a period in American history where the leading candidates for the two major parties are both widely disliked, not only by the population at large, but their own parties aren't biggest fans. Mm -hmm. The Democrats say Biden's too old. Uh, the Republicans say Trump, who's only, what, two and a half years younger than Biden, um, isn't fit. Uh, you, you have both parties wishing for alternatives. When was the last time that happened? So you can go back to, you know, the early 1980s. I think it was John Anderson. I recall. Helped Clinton get elected, yeah. right? It would not surprise me if both Biden and Trump are not on the ballot a year from now. Really? Yeah. Because the you go to the betting sites, they seem to think it's a head-to-head. -head. Absolutely. Um, but watch how we use the term old. You know, the old can mean wise, experienced, sure. resilient. It can also mean decrepit. It can mean out of touch. And if you think about Joe Biden's career, he came into office as the young buck against an aging group of politicians on a national level. On a national level, we have once again. And we are back uh, to that. Both that parties, yeah. House, Senate, yeah. uh, uh, even the Supreme yeah. Court. We have a lot of people yeah. who are, let's just politely say, yeah. uh, AARP members. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think we have seen yet the kind of grassroots political leader who rises from within. And, and I think that that is a real possibility. What's, what's interesting with both parties is that we have these figures who are seeking to control from above. Right. History suggests that in times of turmoil, we choose from within. That, that leaders that come sort of unexpectedly from below and not the ones that we expect. I mean, I, I look at somebody like Zelensky, who no one believed would be a credible leader. And yet, from my perspective, had all the traits of a great crisis leader. Uh -huh. You know, can read the room, is, you know, just quick all, on his feet, quick on his feet, relatively you know. intelligent. Yeah. And and I don't know if it's the case for him, but, you know, a lot of comedians suffer from depression. And, and you know, if you're in a crisis, you know, uncertainty and powerlessness is called Tuesday. Um, <laughs> right. my, my friend Nasser Gami has written a, a wonderful book on um, leader crises and the relationship to, to uh, mental illness. But. It would not surprise me, Barry, to see young local politicians, governors, mayors, who upend the rhetoric and surprise on both sides of the party. Huh, that, that's interesting. We, we've touched very briefly on social media. L let's talk about media generally and social media uh, on a related basis. There's been so much misinformation. There's been so much um, problems being able to have trustworthy sources. How can we look at sentiment and confidence as a way to deal with these issues? Yeah, so when confidence is high, we go to the center 
we watch three networks, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC. Still, is that still the no, case? No, but, but my, my point is that in the 1960s, as confidence was peaking, we're all watching the same news stories from right. the same... We've been totally balkanized since then. And There's a thousand channels. Yeah, and, and the balkanization that takes place today can be instantaneous. So as your mood changes, Barry, if I create a more resonant, deliverer. And you could watch this on the right with Fox, then Newsmax, then OAN, as as Republican confidence changed. Right. You will find the provider of news that is most me here now you. Right. And the internet and social media enables that like there's no tomorrow. And and we forget that familiarity and truthiness are much more appealing to us than the truth. We're, we're all confirmation bias and less fact-checking than, than we want to admit to. Particularly when confidence is low. But let, let's stick with, oh really, particularly yeah. when confidence yeah, is low. Yeah, because if I've, if I've got all these other things to focus on, I don't have the cognitive bandwidth. That's fair. You know, to do the fact-checking. So, so let's apply the same left-right analysis that we were talking about with economics before, and it's more up-down than left-right. When I look at both social media and and mainstream media, I often find people who are arguing left-right are missing the point. It's usually more what's more sensationalistic, what's more clickbaity, what's more hair on fire, and what's more structurally, here's the horse race. So let's not talk about policy. Who's ahead right now? It's always what's the easiest way to generate eyeballs than it is to provide more, more heat than light, so to speak. Yeah, so our, so our media focus is intensely about resonance, relevance, and that creates several problems. One is the media has to follow its audience as opposed to lead its audience. The media also has to create even greater excitement. So I, I joke often that we've gone from the circus barkers promoting a two-headed lady. You know, the lady now has to have about 15 heads to capture attention. And that becomes unsustainable. One of the things, if you think about our culture of followership, the goal is dependence. And so whether I'm a politician, a member of the media, a pundit at large, right. the goal is permanent dependence. You have to keep coming back to me. And what I'm looking for, Barry, are leaders who are talking about empowerment, that, that send a message. And again, this could be this is where I think up down may matter, is if I send a message of empowerment to those at the bottom, you could easily draw together a cohort from both the left and the right that generates this grassroots movement. Pardon me for personalizing this, but you seem fairly optimistic that in this time of uh, uncertainty and partisanship and negative sentiment and just general disarray, you seem fairly optimistic that we're going to come out of this okay. I guess I would say I am optimistic that we will tire of the uncertainty. We Uh will tire of the powerlessness and Groups will seek to regain or gain, in depending on the situation, certainty and control in their lives. 
how that struggle plays out, I don't know. But there is no question in my mind that the uncertainty will end. It may be chaotic. You know, it could be civil war as groups fight for what is what does certainty mean for you versus right. what it means for me. But we don't endure this well. The, the Hundred Years' War doesn't uh, – the reason we haven't had one since is who wants to be at war for a hundred years? Yeah. Huh, really quite interesting. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common – it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. And let's jump to our favorite questions, starting with, what are you streaming these days? Tell us what you're either watching or listening to. So um, we're streaming uh, Murders in the Building. My wife uh, assesses and trains uh, autistic adults. Uh And so we've been watching Love on the Spectrum, uh, which is a really heartwarming. um, You know, I, I watch what my wife's organization does to transform autistic adults' lives and even more their parents' lives. Uh-huh. And so it's really heartwarming to see um, that there's there are so many opportunities that we ignore otherwise. Huh. Really, really interesting. Tell us about some of your early mentors who, who helped to shape your career. Um, I think of some of the, the mentors I had at J.P. Morgan, uh, particularly a guy named Dave Wakefield. Um, you know, Going into an organization like J.P. Morgan when I did, it was an organization that was about to undergo mammoth transformation. And what I so value was the wisdom of what we might refer to now as old heads. Uh You know, know, the, the world of finance is typically filled with young, aggressive. You had these folks who would like, yes, and, you know, to your point, they'd seen it before. There was nothing new under the sun. And and I really feel like a lot of organizations miss that sense of judgment. And so I feel really blessed to have had that. Huh, very interesting. Let's, let's talk about books. 
What are some of your favorites? What are you reading now? Yeah, so interestingly, Barry, one reading is very difficult for me, but I spend so much of my day reading. I know the feeling. Because I'm trying to capture what's going on in politics and economics and finance all at the same time that by the end of the day, I want to go pull weeds in the vegetable garden. I want to, you know, reading is, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it just, I, it, it takes me a couple of days on vacation before I can crack that, a book. That's my favorite place to read is on vacation, read a book on vacation or when I'm prepping for a podcast. Yep. So let's go to our final two questions. What advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either finance or studying sentiment? So in the, in the world of finance, I would say don't feel beholden to New York. I think there's a lot of folks who come out of college with that, you know, if I don't make it in New York, I, you know. And what I love so much about finance today is that there are opportunities in so many different angles of it in so many different places. Boston, Charlotte, Chicago, San Francisco, the number of Atlanta, the number of financial hubs have expanded dramatically. And and there is pretty active, you know, venture capital used to be just San Francisco. Uh, There are a number of venture hubs all over the country. Yeah. And to your question about sentiment, I think a lot of economists and finance professionals focus a lot of energy on what we do poorly, what we do wrong. And I think we need more attention on what do we just do? You know, if our, if our objective is to change people's behavior, we need to understand what do we do that's unscripted. And, and I feel like the reason I wrote this book is to say, this is what we just do. And, and if I understand that better, then I can start to make better decisions. And our final question, what do you know about the world of finance, investing, sentiment, confidence today you wish you knew 30 or so years ago when you were first getting started? That what I think doesn't matter. To be successful, I need to understand how others think and feel. Because at the end of the day, my price is a function of their behavior. In other words, the the crowd determines market price, the crowd determines sentiment. It's all about the we, not the me. Absolutely. Really fascinating. Peter, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Peter Atwater, author of The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 500 such discussions we've had over the past nine years. You can find those at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz or on X at Barry underscore Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts at Podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Anna Luke is my producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Tech. 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.